Hello, I'm Rhiannon, and you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, part three of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. The rise of populism in recent years has provoked profound questions around the viability of existing democratic systems and the future of developing democracies. At its core, populism is a political ideology that appeals to the everyday person who feels their voice and concerns are disregarded by the elite established groups. However, nowadays, we are witnessing just how it can be weaponized to dismantle and erode democratic systems. It's in elite's best interest to really do this stuff because once people start losing faith in the system, they become ungovernable. Today's episode features two guests. First, I chat with Anastasia Kapetis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute about the history of populism, faux populism, and how it's come to influence contemporary democratic institutions around the world. After the break, you'll hear from Brandon Wu, a political activist from the United States, about how populism has been used to erode democratic institutions in the wake of the 2020 US presidential elections, and if there's any hope for democracy moving forward. First, I chat with Anastasia Kapetis. Today, I'm joined by Anastasia Kapetis, who is the National Security Editor at The Strategist from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Anastasia, welcome. Thank you. It's really fantastic to be here. To kick us off, are you able to give us a bit of context about yourself, your professional and academic background, and how you've come to be engaged in the area of international affairs? Absolutely. Um, I come from a Greek background, which means that politics is like mother's milk. You grow up talking about the big themes, the big issues at the dinner table every day and arguing, really arguing your point. So I was always really obsessed with international relations. I've always wanted to do it. Fast forward a decade or so, I was doing a PhD in international relations at UNSW and my supervisor at the time got arrested for a crime. So I taught my way into a job um, being the online editor for The Diplomat magazine. And when that happened with my supervisor, it just so happened the editor left. I put myself forward and argued about why I should have that job and became the editor of The Diplomat. And I was there for about five years. And in that time, we turned it around from a tiny publication that was losing money to something that had a global presence. And then I went to work in Canberra and I spent a decade in intelligence, so working across various roles and teams. And then I became an advisor at the National Security College and then from there joined ASPE last year. Amazing. So... Today, we're going to be talking about populism. We've seen in recent years a rise in populism and how it's provoked profound questions about the viability of existing democratic systems and the future of developing democracies. I'm wondering if you could give a bit of background on how populism has emerged historically and what it looks like in contemporary society today. 
Absolutely. So I think one of the really interesting places to start is in the US at the end of the 19th century. And that was the the time when the first populist party, they called themselves populists, emerged. And why did they emerge? It was because of a very severe economic downturn. And there was a real sense that most working people were completely disenfranchised from the political process. It was the time of robber barons, of oligopolies, of a lot of inequality and violence in the US and political violence as well and of course race. So populists got together and they decided to create a party and an agenda for the working man and the average American. So at this point I think it's really interesting to think about the notion of populism and false populism. So those two things have changed hands in 20th century history in the US and Europe and of course here as well. So that was the first wave of populism in the US and we could pretty much take their agenda and put it in today's terms and it would sound very familiar. So they wanted to break up big companies. Um, They wanted living wages. They want unions essentially protected. They were also very concerned about the financialization of the economy and the fact that this excluded working people and middle-class people from the economy in very important ways. And the other interesting thing about populism at that time was they wanted to get black people and white people together in the US and make common cause against oligarchical elites. And that is the essence of populism. And if we want to just jump back even further, back to, you know, the birthplace of democracy, ancient Greece, this also has antecedents there. So again, democracy is really about a horizontal politics rather than a hierarchical politics. And populism, with its optimism, with its energy, and the idea that everyone can participate in politics, is the essence of democratic politics. So the next wave of populism was really around after the great crash in the US of 1929. So many things unraveled in the US. So it took about four years for things to become very unspooled economically and for working people across the US to really, really suffer. FDR uh, was a president who took a lot of the ideas of the populace of of the late 19th century and he transposed them into the 30s and he essentially carried out all these kinds of reforms to redistribute power and money and to really create a middle class. And again, this is a matter for historical debate, but I'm probably on the side of historians that say this period of great reform in the US set the scene for the prosperity of the 50s and the 60s, but also for the great society and civil society and civil rights movements. Then, you know, populism began to have a relatively checkered history in that post-civil rights period. And again, one telling of history here is that the civil rights movement was a bridge too far. For a lot of conservative Americans. After the civil rights movement was the idea that these policies were very, very threatening to oligarchical interests. And there was a very famous memo called the Federalist Memo that was written by some conservative elites that essentially this sort of social democracy was going to overturn the democracy that they liked, which was essentially ruled by elites with a little bit of electoral magic kind of in between. It kind of argued that what conservatives needed to do was organise and make sure that the legal system in the US backed moneyed interests. After Nixon, the American public was kind of exhausted. They were disillusioned. They voted in a Democrat president at the time. Papers were saying there will never be another Republican president again. 
And then, unfortunately, what happened to Jimmy Carter was real bumps in the road geopolitically. So there was the Arab-Israeli war that gave rise to the oil shocks of the 70s, which completely upended economies across the Western world, introduced a concept called stagflation, where you had high unemployment plus really high inflation, which completely eroded people's savings. And so you had another period of real economic volatility for the average person in the U.S., Then Reagan came along, much more charismatic than Carter, ex-actor, could really tell a story, and he sold a really optimistic story about America. It's warning in America. At the same time, he reintroduced these notions of race into Republican Party politics and introduced the notion of the dog whistle. He's also saying, but we're giving too much money to welfare queens. So in that way, the twin themes of Republican Party politics came into being very, very pro-business, but also race whistling. So Reagan's kind of shtick was that opportunities there for everyone, and if we deregulate the economy, then everyone has a chance and money trickles down from the top into the pockets of everyone. So you don't need to redistribute wealth because it's going to do that by itself. That didn't happen. And so what we've seen since the late 70s is real wages in the US have either stagnated or gone down. And you've seen a huge transfer of wealth go from the middle class right to the 1%. And that has given rise to the kinds of things that we associate now with populism, which is the sort of faux populism of, of Donald Trump. How do you know that something is false populism? How do you know? Usually if it involves race. If somebody plays the race card, they're doing a deal with the devil with you. There's a dark deal that goes on with false populism. All of the impulses to violence and anger that you have inside, we're going to let you express them to a certain class of people, any kind of vulnerable, marginalised group in the community, and we're going to let you go them, either metaphorically through political debate or actually, you know, through militias. You know, and again, this has a real history in the United States. So if you find yourself going, yeah, to that, step back, have a think about why you're feeling so attracted to those sets of ideas. False populism takes some of that language of freedom and enfranchisement and puts a race spin on it. And just one kicker, if you look at who funds false populism, the backers of false populism are always oligarchs and the agenda they enact once in office is always the same which is to get rid of taxes for the 1%, to redistribute more wealth up to the top and to dismantle social protections. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing about the historical shift in populism and how the word has almost been corrupted in today's society. It kind of feeds into my next question of why do you think populism or is it faux populism, which is supposed to appeal to the ordinary people and the fight against the establishment, how has that turned into such a negative political phenomenon? Well, I think we have to talk about the other thing that's happened to the other side of politics, so liberal democratic politics. Uh, I think an argument can be made to say that liberals themselves lost faith in democracy in a sense and in popular will. And here, again, this is something that many historians support with a lot of data, that essentially the rise of experts and the rise of expertise in government, you know, societies get more complex, we need more expertise. And so what happens when you put all of these people who are supposedly trained to be administrators, essentially they become a new kind of elite. Even if they don't have money, they have institutional and cultural power. The ordinary person feels that they can't participate in government anymore because they're not clever enough, they're not educated enough. And then you give specialised knowledge a special language like legalese or 
bureaucracies. And essentially what it does is it gets people to switch off. And we complain as elites. Average person completely disconnected from politics, couldn't give a staff, would rather watch, you know, the block, et cetera, et cetera. I found that not to be true. As soon as you have a conversation with people about power in ordinary vernacular language, as you should, they get it. But where I think there's another really big complication is social media platforms and the kinds of discourse they privilege. So there's been a new Facebook whistleblower and this time with an absolute cache of internal documents. These documents basically say, we've actually found that our basic business model privileges right-wing extremism, white supremacism and conspiracism. Yay for us. You know, that was in 2019. Uh, it also found that the algorithms they use to try and take down some of this crap um, only work in 0.02% of cases. And they actually depend on humans to, to take down some of the others. But they only really now do that in Western markets. And if you're in India or in Indonesia or the Philippines, too bad. So I think that's the other thing that is generating a real false populism at the moment. And it's a weird populism because of the medium. So are you aware of QAnon? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, as, again, it's a bunch of incredibly crazy conspiracies. There's conspiracies in there that fit every eventuality. It's not cohesive. You couldn't call it really an ideology. It takes a lot of stuff from you know, anti-Semitic tropes, white supremacist tropes, weird stuff that was actually around in the, the 20s and 30s and was part of the you know, Nazi propaganda. But this kind of stuff that has an addictive effect on the brain, why addictive? Basically because if you look at this material, it is based on horror. The worst of the worst things happening, incredibly graphic in detail. So it's really, really gothic. And what that does to the brain is it just gives it this massive surge. It acts very like a drug. So a massive surge of dopamine and the outrage level has to increase because you get really desensitised. And so that's part of the dynamic that pushes this sort of conspiracism into just outlandish territory. Why do we even care? Well, we should care because now there's a QAnon caucus in the US Congress. We should care because roughly around 25% of folk in the US who identify as Republicans also identify as QAnon. So this has some pretty negative effects on the ability of the US to govern itself. On balance, I think we should also be thinking about how that's affecting our own politics because I think we've seen that sort of conspiracism really rise this year, uh, partly due to COVID. Mm, absolutely. It's super interesting how all of these areas tie into each other. America is a prime example of this. We've talked a lot about how we see populism manifest in the US, particularly with right-wing political factions. What do you think are the key differences between populism on the right and on the left? And do you have any examples of populist governments around the world that fit into these different categories? Um, I think Bernie Sanders could be seen as a left populist and not a faux populist. He was pretty much crowdfunded. He wasn't funded by big money interests and he had a very um, classically populist agenda. But the other place to look is, is South America and there's been lots of left-wing governments uh, over the years. Probably the last famous one is probably Lula de Silva, who is, funnily enough, as, you know, as old as he is, now going to be contesting the next Brazilian election against Bolsonaro, who is a classic example of a faux populist, somebody who plays the race card, who plays the gender card, says he's for the people, yet essentially enacts politics that means that people get poorer, the favelas get bigger. It's not that conservatives can't be populist. 
But I think to be a real populist and a faux populist, you have to believe in democracy. I mean, that's really key. I think some good examples of conservative populists, um, and, you know, one might be Winston Churchill, again, a really checkered figure, really complex figure, not saying that he's you know, a hero without stain. But at the same time, he's someone that really, I think really believed the idea of democracy at least. I suppose that brings me to my final question. In what ways do you think democracy can be protected from the excesses of this faux populism and how is this faux populism still a threat to democracy worldwide? So a tiny question and something that I'm sure I can just answer really quickly. But just let me say that the Biden administration has identified the erosion of democracy as a key national security threat to the United States for a couple of reasons. One is that autocracies tend to be more unstable, they tend to be more violent, they tend to cause more instability in the global system, they tend to be more corrupt and enable and become havens for corruption and violence. And the second reason is because usually autocratic governments are so shit at governing, we're entering a time of climate change which demands better governance and more cooperation both within countries and between countries than probably ever before. This is a huge, huge governance challenge. So those are the two reasons why Biden has gone, we really need to make the stabilisation of democracy a real priority for this administration. He's having a democracy summit, 10th of December, I think, and Australia's supposed to rock up and have some really great ideas to put on the table. So what might some of those be? I think the first thing you always have to address when you think about strengthening democracy is corruption. If too much corruption takes root, if there's too much money in politics, then it's really difficult for democratic societies to wind that back. It's in elites' best interest to really do this stuff because once people start losing faith in the system, they become more and more ungovernable. Eventually, that affects you. And we're living in such a volatile world that there's very few places you can run to anymore. It's in your own self-interest, essentially, just to make sure that the country that you live in functions. I think the second thing which governments are really struggling with around the world is what to do about social media platforms, which are such a source of polarisation and radicalisation. So everything from antitrust, which means breaking up big companies like Google and Facebook, more regulation to try and force companies to put more resources into taking down disinformation and material that leads to radicalisation. Basically, those are your options. Yeah, it's a, a lot to think about, that's for sure. Anastasia, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for our discussion. It was genuinely really insightful. If any of our listeners want to know more, read some of your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, the best way is just through my Aspie email. So if you just like Google Anastasia Capetis at Aspie, that'll come up. And if anyone would like, you know, reading recommendations or want to engage with these issues in some way, then please do get in touch. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Keep listening because after the break, I chat to Brandon Wu about his political activism and how he is working to promote and protect democracy in the United States. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. Brandon, welcome to Global Questions. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. To get us started, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what your political activism looks like? 
Absolutely. So ever since my final year of high school, I've been pretty much involved in political campaigns here in the United States. I think for me, it's a lot about electing leaders who really represent your community and are standing up for those who oftentimes don't have a voice. And so for me, even coming to college now, working on a campaign in Virginia with this evening being election night, um, it's been so empowering to get to know so many volunteers, to get to know people who really wanna fight for our democracy and make sure that working class people really have a seat at the table as opposed to just being on the menu. Absolutely. It sounds like a very busy time for you. So today we're talking about the rise of populism and we've seen this rise in recent years and it's provoked a lot of profound questions around the viability of existing democratic systems. In the US, we've witnessed this rise of populism and how it's woven into politics through the everyday rhetoric of former President Donald Trump. In your opinion, what ways did former President Donald Trump use populist rhetoric to undermine faith in the US democratic institutions during and in the run-up to and after the 2020 elections? That's a great question. I think for me, I saw so many people within my community buy into that populism from the president and just the Republican Party overall who really embraced President Trump as a key figurehead within the party. I think for me, what I witnessed is that in the lead up to the election, President Trump was already alleging that if he didn't win the election, that it was stolen from him. And then beyond that, I would say the ideas that he embraced about how he was the one who would fight for the working class, despite some of his legislation and his policy priorities being passed, showing the opposite. It really demonstrated that he fully was engaged with his base and that they fully bought into what he believed almost as fact. After the election and in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection, we saw his talking points about Dominion and the election having irregularities leading to fraud that being really bought into by his supporters. Do you think that the events of January 6th were inevitable and that the US potentially would be at risk of similar incidents in the future? What I will say is I don't think the insurrection or the events of January 6th were specifically inevitable, but the root causes were. And what I mean by that is I think the concept of rising polarization among Democrats and Republicans in our two-party system here, I, I would say mainly the Republican Party has been shifting with the Tea Party movement, you know, the birtherism allegations against President Obama, alleging that he wasn't from our country. I would argue that we've already seen that Democrats and Republicans didn't really trust each other. And to some extent in 2021, they might even view each other as enemies. I think that was inevitable. However, I do think the U.S. is at risk of polarization exploding into these sorts of incidents in the future. Even our president today tried to move towards the middle and argue that we're all Americans at the end of the day and there is common ground. You still see a return to polarization when election season comes by. Absolutely. You know, this increasing polarization, changing international environment as well, all compounds these issues. Flipping to a more positive note, as a part of your activism, have you worked on any interesting projects to restore confidence in American democracy? Definitely. A lot of the work that we've been doing is really positive advocacy. I think, for instance, one of the things that I worked on over the summer was just getting high school students registered to vote. Just like going into the community, talking to voters about the power of your vote from your school board elections all the way up to the presidency or to your governor. And that a lot of people that are my age or in Gen Z really do believe that to some extent voting still does work. That's amazing. It's very inspiring and optimistic to see your view on democracy in the future. I suppose that takes me to my last question. 
from your perspective as a youth activist, what steps need to be taken at a whole of society level to restore faith in American democracy? Great questions. I think first off, um, we definitely need to be operating under the same set of information. So we need to start at square one, making sure that everyone really believes in full faith in our democracy. And I think that means um, in terms of civics education, in terms of what we teach our students in school, we can't be saying that certain parts of our history need to be hidden from our children, for instance. I'd also say that in terms of talking about politics in the classroom and exposing people to different viewpoints is something so important. It's something that I fortunately had the opportunity to engage in at my public high school, but I know a lot of other students will hear sometimes that, oh, we don't talk about politics in class, which I think is kind of unfortunate because it means that you're delaying young people's participation in politics until they're 18 and out of high school. So at the end of the day, I, I do think I am very optimistic in terms of our you know, future generation, our current generation, in terms of helping make sure that our democracy is strengthened. Because I really do think that if we put in the hard work to spend time talking to young people, to talking to people who may be disillusioned in our elections, that we can actually restore democracy to the strength that it was decades ago. Absolutely. Those are some really inspiring words. Brandon, thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast today. If any of our listeners want to know more about you, get in touch, read some of your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the easiest way is just to get in contact with me via email. I can give it to you to put in like listener notes if needed. Absolutely. We'll be popping those in the episode description. But yeah, thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's in-depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, Josh and Hugh's fortnightly recap of news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more content, quizzes, and regular news updates. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.